Okay, uh, good afternoon, everybody. Um, welcome to um, the Middle East Center um, uh, Zoom event um, at the London School of Economics. Um, nice to see all the participants uh, uh, here, uh, although virtually. Um, I'm Madawi Al-Rashid. I'm a visiting professor at the Middle East Center and a fellow of the British Academy. Um, we've got uh, Dr. Mark Owen-Jones today, um, and he's going to talk to us about his new book. Um, Dr. Um, Owen-Jones is going to speak for 15 minutes, and then we're going to open the session for Q&A. And anybody who wants to um, uh, ask a question, please use the uh, little box at the bottom of your screen where it says uh, Q&A and type your question. Um, and I hope that we will be able to cover as many questions as possible. Please, um, as this is a, a Zoom meeting, make sure that your question is short and concise so that we could give an opportunity to almost everybody if we can. Um, um, if you um, um, would like to um, tweet about the event, you can use the hashtag LSE Bahrain or LSE Middle East. And also please note that this event will be recorded and will also be live streamed on Facebook. So I would like to welcome our speaker today, um, Mark. Owen Jones. Um, he is um, assistant professor in the Middle East Studies and Digital Humanities at Hamad bin Khalifa University in Doha. Prior to this, he was a lecturer in Gulf history at Exeter University, where he remains an honorary research fellow. He recently completed his PhD in 2016 at Durham University where he wrote an indisciplinary thesis on the history of political repression in Bahrain. The thesis won the 2016 dissertation prize from the Association for Gulf and Arabian Peninsula Studies. Driven by issues of social justice and the specific area interested in the uh, Gulf, his research spans a number of topics from historical revisions, post-colonialism, de-democratization, and revolutionary cultural production to policing, digital authoritarianism, and human rights. At the moment, Jones is working on a number of topics, including propaganda and Twitter bots, mapping sectarian hate, speech, and archival work related to Bahrain and land appropriation. Very topical at the moment. Uh, welcome, Mark. And uh, if you'd like to start now, we're all listening. Yes, thank you very much uh, for that introduction, Dawi, and thank you everyone for attending. Uh, it's great to be back at LSE virtually. I think the last time I was at LSE uh, talking was perhaps 2011, actually, when I started my PhD. I was giving a presentation on Bahrain, on the uprisings, and it was quite interesting because uh, there was definitely some people in the audience who are uh, had, I think, ulterior motives for being there, which was evident in the Q&A, which made it very interesting. Um, so it's great to be back. Um, I will talk for about 15 minutes about the book, giving an overview, and then, as Madawi said, there'll, there'll be questions. So firstly, um, I always think a bit of reflection on positionality is, is important uh, for, those, for those who are 
I'm familiar with me or my work. Uh, I, I grew up in Bahrain and, and Saudi Arabia. Uh, I lived there as uh, as a child and a teenager. So it, for me, it's it's the place that I feel that I belong. Um, and you know, it's obviously been very difficult, a very difficult journey uh, writing this book. Um, I was banned from going back to Bahrain in about 2012, uh, so I haven't been there some time. Uh, now I live in Doha, so obviously I'm I'm doubly not welcome now. Uh, so. Yeah, and the book itself is, is probably the final nail in the coffin for, for me returning anytime soon. Um, but, you know, the, the book is, is very much um, uh, kind of, it's, it's a labor of love. It was based on my PhD. And as many of you know, the title is Political Repression in Bahrain. And one of the first things that people tend to ask me is, well, why have you gone with political repression? I think lots of people find it um, uh, to be an emotive kind of term. Uh, and I always counter that with saying, well, actually, it's a perfectly valid inquiry in the realm of political and social science. I think there's a tendency to assume that the terms political repression are somehow loaded uh, and have sort of a, um, a connotation of, of a specific ontology, uh, which maybe they do, but it's a perfectly valid field. And I think one of the interesting things about writing this book, it, it began when I started my PhD, which was in 2011, which is when the Bahrain uprising really started. And what was very interesting to me was, was, was someone who was observing events and spending a lot of time documenting the uh, state brutality carried out by the police and the security forces. And it became very evident to me that there was a gap that specifically focused on the methods and the manners in which the, um, the Al-Khalifa regime resisted attempts to, to generate social change. And for me, the best paradigm to understand this, this form of, of presenting social change was repression. And this was at a time when people were talking a lot about social movements and organization. And there was very much a lot of emphasis on the, the social movements themselves. Uh, and so I thought it'd be very interesting to focus on the actual resistance to those social movements by the state or by various actors. And I think this tied in with this other thing that was going on at the time, which was the rise of social media, which features in my book and I'll get to later which was a, a, a tendency to view something like social media as being a fundamentally positive force. The focus was very much on how it could be used as a tool of liberation and emancipation and democratization. And because my research early on was focused on social media, I very much began also to see, in addition to the, the brutality we saw on the ground, the state, the police brutality, how social media and technology was also very much an important aspect of how the state was using uh, digital media to, to control or attempt to control opposition movements. So there was a number of things happened that very much um, determined why I thought to focus on political repression as a topic. Uh, and that got me down uh, reading various uh, literatures around political repression. And I think what's very interesting is that we hear, hear terms like counter-revolution a lot, we hear uh, oppression, repression. And there's a rich body of literature about political repression that explores how states tend to, to um, resist social movements. And this isn't limited to what we might determine term as traditional authoritarian states. This kind of literature spans the globe from authoritarian countries to liberal democracies or however you want to term them. So there's a whole gamut of, um, you know, techniques. And, you know, as the saying goes, all states repress, right? But the question I thought was interesting is how do states repress? What methods do they use? Um, do they use violence? Do they use legal channels? Do they use technology? Do they use socialization through education? What are all these kind of techniques that are used? And again, you know, exploring, exploring the kind of 
literature on impression, a lot of it was focused on these kind of high level variables, this covariate analysis um, on sort of, you know, uh, democracies are less likely to oppress versus, you know, authoritarian countries are more likely to oppress. There was very little done on the nuances of repression um, on a sort of qualitative explorations of repression, especially across historical case studies. There was some interesting work done in the US uh, by Goldstein and others who have who've kind of explored in detail the techniques of oppression used by the state. So I thought it would be very interesting to apply this notion of exploring what methods states use to repress and how these methods changed over time. Um, one of the kind of outcomes of or upshots of me not being able to go back to Bahrain was that I very much had to change my research approach, which I think is, is, is you know, that's something that sometimes happens during PhDs, you have to adapt. Uh, and whilst I was able to do some work remotely, um, I couldn't do research on the ground, as it were. Um, so I ended up focusing a lot of my efforts looking at online data, um, you know, you know, sort of working with, with, with activists and I include myself among that in Bahrain and also looking at the archives. Uh, and I thought, well, you know, there's been good histories done in Bahrain, very solid histories, but none through the lens of political oppression. So I sort of asked myself how in Bahrain's history, and, and this was another interesting aspect of 2011, you know, the more I explored, the more it became very clear that Bahrain um, has had cycles of unrest going over the past hundred years. And obviously these cycles of unrest and, and oppositional movements have generated change, some political change or some social change, but often they haven't achieved the goals that they've set out or stated as their intention, whether that's, uh, you know, creating a, an effective or actual functioning parliament that is able to actually determine its own laws, these kind of things. They've always in some way failed to achieve those objectives. That's not to say there's been their failures. I think that's a, that's a separate debate. And I don't necessarily want to go into that right now. So, you know, I, I decided to frame the research uh, looking at the past hundred years with answering the question, so how has the state resisted social change and political change? Uh, and that raised a lot of interesting uh, questions. For example, how am I going to look at this? How am I going to frame it? So, you know, I, I was, um, I decided to come up with this template of different repressive techniques based on the literature, in addition to looking at the kind of techniques that I thought uh, were, became evident as I looked through the historical data and the contemporary data that we're seeing. And so I've structured the book really according to these four larger categories of, of political oppression. One is statecraft, so the use of uh, political maneuvering and stuff to attempt to, to kind of uh, uh, control social movements through various either administrative or political means. Another is physical coercion or personal integrity violence. This is more perhaps your normative sense of police violence, torture, these kind of things. Uh, then there's legal control. I thought, you know, what was very interesting about the history of Bahrain was the emergence of the, the legal order and the changing nature of the legal order and how law increasingly became a useful technique of repression. And also informational control. And this is, again, where the, the digital element came in. I was very much interested in propaganda and the role of the media and the grow, growing role of media across the, the past hundred years in actually uh, working to demonize and stigmatize social movements. So the book is kind of split into these four categories, each of which is narrated fairly chronologically within those specific categories. So we're looking at statecraft, you know, it's, it's a question of, you know, politically over hundred years, how did those techniques change in terms of trying to resist, uh, again, opposition. And to give some more context, I think what we need to look at is over the hundred years, we've had different social movements in Bahrain. 
in the 1920s we saw increasing uh, um, uh, we saw increasing the Baharana population increasingly were being um, uh, oppressed by the ruling Akhlifa family they became the kind of main force of mobilization against the ruling family, uh, often appealing to the British to try and help them. Then we saw in the 30s, the, the budding of a kind of nascent democratic movement um, that again were, were, were sort of uh, nipped in the bud um, until the 1950s. And again, when this movement sort of blossomed again and that culminated really in, in its leaders being, being exiled by the British and the Akhalifa regime to St. Helens. And then we saw through the 70s, 60s and 70s, more sort of nationalist and, and, and left-wing kind of uh, movements, uh, workers' movements emerging. And then arguably in the 80s, we saw this kind of Islamist movement that was certainly framed more as an Islamist, Islamist movement uh, coming out. And then the 90s, we saw something similar. And, and obviously in 2011, we saw again, a kind of cross-sect movement uh, kind of again, um, coming out to resist uh, al-Khalifa oppression. So we've, we've had multiple different movements at that time. So the question that I thought was interesting and why Bahrain made a, an interesting case study was for a number of reasons. Firstly, Bahrain, um, in addition to having these episodes of unrest, represented a very kind of interesting and sort of underexplored uh, case study within the literature of political oppression. What you have in Bahrain, you have a country essentially that has had two suzerains. You had British imperial overrule uh, for 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 a long time until 1971 when Bahrain became independent. And then you had a sort of new dynamic in which Bahrain became increasingly close to Saudi Arabia and more under the influence of Saudi Arabia uh, and also the US um, as US hegemony in the region increased. So what you also had was this very interesting case study where you had uh, a ruling regime or a sort of ruling family who in some ways had, a, 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 that was sub subservient to an existing power structure above them. And I thought it would be very interesting to see over time, in addition to, to sort of the developments of, of, of you know, changing technology and, and, and uh, changing world defense, how these two, how this relationship with external actors also impacted on the nature of the repressive techniques being used by the, by the authorities. And this is where I think, in addition to offering a lot of empirical, hopefully empirical richness about Bahrain and the changing things, I want to sort of be able to make this argument that what's very interesting is that you do see changes in repressive techniques depending on who the sort of um, suzerain or the kind of uh, the, the dominant power is in those countries. Um, as like one of the most obvious examples, I think what's particularly interesting if you look at something, I suppose, less, um, less abstract, such as torture or deaths rather, deaths by torture in Bahrain began at least in the, 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 from the 1900s to the 21st century, they began after 1971, that we know of. So when I was, for example, looking at the, the, the sort of archival data and the data from very, you know, human NGOs, was, I could see that death by torture started to increase in the 1970s. So the question is, why are deaths by torture, deaths in prison, occurring more now than they did before? That doesn't mean that torture didn't occur before, for example. We know that for example, the British, Charles Belgrave wrote in his diary that he would beat up Bahraini detainees in prison. But we, would, we didn't see evidence of people dying in prison. At least that we know of, or that, that wasn't. Um, that information is certainly not uh, available in any of the archives that I consulted. And so what you see, you begin to explore these changes of, of, of certain aspects of the dynamics of politics that impact upon these methods of repression. So with regards to torture, 
we see a number of things happen post-1971. We see um, a reassertion of the control of uh, a very kind of hardline aspect of the ruling family. In this case, what you see is uh, Khalifa bin Salman, the current prime minister, begin to take control of internal security in Bahrain, more so than he ever had done. And for example, at this point, you see a sidelining uh, of, of the former colonial police in favor of Khalifa bin Salman. And what often happened is you have someone like Khalifa bin Salman who has a more personalistic role in the nature of the kind of techniques being used by the police. He has a more kind of autocratic involvement in those methods themselves. At the same time as that, he is also very responsive to the needs of Saudi Arabia. So for example, in, in the late 70s, when a, um, uh, a newspaper ed editor, Abdul al-Madani, was murdered by, or allegedly murdered by the Popular Front for the Liberation of uh, the Arabian Gulf, which again is something I can test based on the data, uh, we saw that the people who were accused of killing him, uh, some were executed, two were killed in custody. At the same time, when they went to trial, it was very clear that the Saudis explicitly said, we need you to put the people accused of this we need you to give them the death sentence, right? So what you have, you have an external force in terms of Saudi via, say, Khalifa bin Salman and, and, and their kind of, um, those more sympathetic to the Saudis and the regime saying, okay, we need to pressure for the death sentence. And you had this uh, interesting example where the, the prime minister threatened to put the judges of the trial on trial if they didn't carry out the death sentences, right? So he's been directly kind of influenced to some extent by the Saudi authorities, which then results in not only egregious methods being taken place in custody, but also the execution of, of, of political prisoners, pr prisoners of conscience. Uh, and that's kind of one aspect of it. But then, I mean, you know, I go into a lot of these case studies, but there's so many aspects to why repressive methods techniques. That's one aspect of why those men were, say, were executed. But then you could also sort of say, well, ordinarily, couldn't they have been reprieved? And they say, yes. Well, then you have to look at the timeliness of it. So there was pressure, there was time pressure to get those men executed. Because if they weren't executed quickly enough, and if, for example, the news of their potential execution got out to the media, then that would potentially create an international crisis that could then generate uh, an uproar, which could then delay the proceedings, which could then ultimately lead to these men not being executed, right? So what do they do for the trial? Well, they prevent, for example, Guardian journalist David Hurst getting in to cover it. They prevent most other media covering this trial. They close the trials in order not to generate international coverage. So when you look at repression, in addition to looking at the political relationships that ultimately culminate in the, the killing of these men, you're also looking at the process that leads to that particular outcome, which in this case includes controlling the media, controlling the kind of uh, the publicity around those events, and who makes the instructions for that. And again, this is another example that comes to the prime minister, where again, he was allegedly the one who direct, made this directive that the press shouldn't be allowed to cover this trial, right? And, and so you hear, by unpicking these specific, specific case studies of political acts, you see these other natures of oppression. Um, and, you know, and sometimes you see patterns occurring across history. So we saw something very similar in 1956, where the British decided to put the uh, that leaders of the Committee of National Union on trial. Again, we saw a, a closed trial. We saw an expedited nature of a political trial that didn't allow the press in. Um, in order, again, that there wouldn't be an uproar about this and that they could be deported uh, without, again, you know, um, a public outcry that could generate a reprieve. So there's so many of these little moments that have so many interacting factors that then generate an outcome. And this is really what the book details. It looks to 
the kind of episodes of contention in Bahrain's history, and then tries to unpick the different aspects, not just the methods of oppression that were used, but why were those methods and why were those outcomes generated? Uh, and, and what are the reasons for that? Because one of the things that's lacking from repression literature is these kind of interpretive uh, analyses of these kind of chains of events, right? And so, you know, this is really what the, the book does. It unpicks these things. And it does make, it makes like a number of large claims. It's hard to do large general claims when you're looking at maybe, you know, 100 years of history. But you, I do sort of argue that the nature of repression this is not about saying one form of repression is better than the other. You know, I'm, I'm not going to go into the argument, but I'm saying that the nature, the modalities of repression changed over the course of 100 years. And there was a certain shift in the nature of that repression between before 1971 and following 1971. Certainly elements of coercion, violence, particularly in the public space and in prison, have gotten more acute since 1971. Prior to 1971, we saw different forms of repression um, that often focused on, on um, administrative change and, uh, you know, the co-optation of, uh, in, in this case, the Al-Khalifa elites. Let's not forget that in 1920s, in many ways, the Al-Khalifa were a form of a social movement attempting to res resist the British, or at least half of them were. So in many ways, the British were while uh, co uh, cooperating with the Al-Khalifa and supporting their rule, were also actually trying to limit the power of the Al-Khalifa in terms of their governance. And much of this was moderated by the fact that the British didn't want to commit uh, coercive resources necessarily to Bahrain like gunboats, which were expensive. So what did they do? They, they reformed the civil list. They deposed the existing ruler. They put one ruler in its place and uh, they put Hammond in its place and decided that he had to control his family through the judicious use of wealth. Uh, so, you know, there's all these kind of different uh, forms of repression that often depend on political expediency at the time and these kind of relations. So it's very hard to make these generalizations about the nature of it. But um, I think asking questions or answering questions, as, as Nadari has indicated with the hands, is, is probably the best way to get into some of the, the details. So thank you for that kind of spiel. Uh, thank, you. thank you very much, Mark. I must say, uh, reading your book a um, couple of months ago, um, it was, it, it is really not for the lighthearted, um, especially when you go into details um, in terms of what happened to specific individuals that, whose names are very well known. Um, mm. So, um, yeah, I, I also appreciated the sort of, uh, yeah, you mentioned that it's a hundred years and it's very difficult to capture that moment. But uh, it was pretty clear, um, you know, the shifts uh, after the 70s. Um, and uh, what struck me was um, this idea of um, uh, reforming the policing practices or the prisons, which is mm. a very interesting um, uh, topic. So uh, just uh, before um, I ask my question, I'm just going to um, uh, uh, wait for a couple of seconds for, to give people a chance to type their questions. Now they've heard the, um, 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 you know, um, the, the presentation. Um, so uh, please, for those of you who have any comment or question, please use the box um, at the bottom of the screen, the Q&A, and type your um, uh, question and I'll be able to see it and uh, Mark will be happy to answer it. So just to, to go to my idea, uh, uh, which I, I sort of picked up in, in your book, 
is reforming the, the police or reforming the prisons. Um, I mean, it, sometimes it sounds really glamorous and great, but uh, reading your book, um, I remember, I think, a case also of um, so-called reform. Uh, and a reform means that you release a prisoner just before they die, after they've been tortured. Uh, so they die outside the prison, and therefore they don't go on the statistics of prisoners dying in prison. So how much was there of, of that going on in Bahrain during this period? Mm. Uh, of, uh, well, I mean, in that specific sense, it's hard to know um, who was released and when. I mean, the release, when we're looking at a justice system here, you know, we're looking at one of the arguments I'm going to make about the legal repression is what Nonet and Selznick call repressive law, right? So what's emerged in Bahrain is this notion of repressive law. This is where there's less distance uh, between law and politics, right? So law always serves political expedience. So as an example with regards to prisoners, what's very common, and as, as many people will probably know, is that the release of political prisoners is often done as one of these makramat or these kind of benevolent acts undertaken by the regime uh, at specific points in time in order to to kind of, um, well, you know, to sort of, to diffuse social tensions, right? So in some cases, you know, the, the really, people aren't just kept indefinitely. Often they are kept for a long period of time, but often despite their sentences, they will be released uh, when the regime deems it to be safe. I mean, there's a number of examples. For example, in the 90s, in the 1990s Intifada, what happened is that p political leaders were released on the, on the, basis that they would then go out and then police their own constituency we will release you but you need to go and calm down the protesters and in that case it didn't work uh, and and it had the opposite effect but we saw it as well in the 50s and 60s we have to also acknowledge that we can't make these generalizations because every ruler was different when we had uh, Sheikh Isa um, he was known as a soft touch right he was known as kind of more benevolent and he would release prisoners because certain families would like, hey, you know, you've arrested our son, uh, can you release him? And then he'd say that they could be released. And then you'd have like a police report saying, you know, the, the, the emir is releasing prisoners and we haven't actually authorized that. And by doing that, he's annoying uh, the chief of police, who is his cousin or something. Uh, and so you have all these kind of complex relationships between uh, different actors within the regime that make it hard in many ways to generalize things. Having said that, there's all these bizarre gray areas one of the sort of tragic outcomes of the, the murder that I mentioned, the political murder in the 70s of the newspaper editor, is that three of the, those accused of killing him were executed. Another two were given various sentences. Some of them served their sentence fully. One of them was, was exonerated, right? However, despite being exonerated, he was kept in prison for eight years. So he'd been exonerated in trial, but they kept him in prison because they worried that if he was released, he'd become a hero and that people then would would use, he'd be, become sort of a, a political hero and, and someone to emulate. So despite the fact that he'd been exonerated, he was kept in prison. So well, the notion, it, it's it, entirely it, arbitrary. It sounds like a familiar story from neighboring countries. Let me yeah. start by reading a, a question to you. Um, yeah. How does a transnational approach inform our understanding of protest in Bahrain? And the second one is, um, uh, I would like to ask about the new normalization deal with Israel. What are the different reactions from the Bahraini street and opposition about this deal? Um, yeah. 
So it's, it's a little bit away from the theme that you uh, discussed, but feel free to answer it. Uh, well, actually, I, I'm kind of glad that the, the first question I think is very useful because this is again one of the themes that, that does emerge from the book. And if I was to make a general argument, again, about one of the themes of the book, it would be to do with this transnational nature uh, of protests. I know that the, the person asking the question is asking about protests, but what I think is very interesting, there was um, a, a book by Delaporto on how transnational protests are policed. And one of the arguments I make about in the book is that what we see is the transnational repression of local protest, right? Mm -hmm. And this is something that's becoming increasingly important because we have the state, I'm not arguing that the state is important. The state is very important. But at the same time, when we look at repression, we need to know that repression is often the culmination of multiple actors facilitating or benefiting from these chains of repression. Just to give an example, uh, what's become very common now in the, the sort of digital age is the use of intrusive electronic surveillance, right? Um, you know, for example, someone and Bahraini activists have been sent a link posting something else. They'll click on that link. It will download a piece of software created by Gamma International, a European company, and then that will allow uh, the Bahraini authorities to, to monitor that behavior. So that's, you know, you have the supply chain starting in Europe, ending in, in Bahrain, um, as being an example of this kind of thing. You have the Bahraini authorities targeting Bahrainis who don't even live uh, in Bahrain anymore. And so, and, you know, historically you've had, you know, the British, you know, the British Empire and British police coming and going from Bahrain. Uh, so you cannot necessarily just ignore the fact that you have these multiple actors involved in benefiting from the repression of the opposition movement in Bahrain. And I think that's a really important thing. We can't just look at the state. We have to look at the, the bigger picture. Um, so I think that's, you know, that might help us. I mean, I know that the question goes back to did the protests, but um, I think transnational, we can't ignore the transnational, even in terms of whether you're talking about people, international solidarity. I mean, one of the arguments I make in the digital media is that despite the use of digital media for oppression, especially early on in the uprising, um, social media in particular, the internet allowed Bahrainis to communicate and establish networks with international NGOs and actors. It allowed them to make visible state repression that would have previously remained invisible and then directly communicate their state repression abroad, helping to foster these chains of accountability that human rights organizations use, helping to foster kind of links between uh, activists and, and policymakers. So there is so much that has changed over the years, it's hard to make one generalization, but we can't look at any case in isolation from, from the rest of the world. Um, regards to Israel, uh, yeah, I mean, I think what's become very clear in the Gulf region is that many of those populations who aren't, I say, sufficiently uh, fearful of their governments have, have generally objected to the normalization or resist normalization. Uh, and we've seen protests in Bahrain. Uh, and I think the government know, I mean, the government have always had various thresholds or red lines that, they, that you have to cross in order for them to act in a brutal fashion. And I think the Bahraini authorities know, for example, and they've had experience before, including when the state of Israel was, was, was kind of uh, established, that you have to give people a certain amount of room to demonstrate in, right? You don't, you, you know, you, if you just repress straight away, it's only gonna escalate things. And that's exactly what I think has happened in Bahrain. People have demonstrated it because, you know, from, from I think what is relatively clear, most Bahrainis want a say on normalization and I would say most probably don't agree with normalization. I don't know. I can't be sure. But at the same time, the Bahraini authorities knew when they normalized, there would be a reaction. 
So they obviously prepared for that. And that part of that preparation would be allowing some form of protest. As long as that protest doesn't then go beyond the red lines that most people can't quite see, if that makes sense. Yeah. And another question, um, uh, can you tell us more about the political and social opposition at different levels in Bahrain after 2011? Uh, yeah, so I, mean, I, I think one of the important things to bear in mind here is, is you know, if I'm trying to be concise, is that the nature of the political and social opposition is very much a contentious, or it's been the subject of contentious, and this is partly due to regime propaganda. The the and and this has been facilitated by media reporting on the on the uprising, which has tended to paint it as a Sunni versus Shia kind of opposition. The government being Sunni and the oppos opposition being Shia, right? Actually, it's far more complicated than that. And historically, and this is again another point I make in the book, and this has happened repeatedly through history. And it's been acknowledged by plenty of scholars from Khori to Rumehi to others that the Bahraini government have capitalized, as did the British and the Al-Khalifa regime. Uh, it's not exclusively British, it's not exclusively Al-Khalifa, have capitalized on dividing opposition movements. This is what power holders do. They um, seek to, to remove uh, coalitions uh, in order to fragment and weaken the opposition. You know, I think Khori once said, that the greatest fear that the Al-Khalifa regime could have is that Sunni and Shia come together in order to oppose them. And you see this again, and, and this is maybe a good example to, to mention the legal repression. You know, I think it was in the 60s when the government actually permitted the establishment of clubs, which were functioned as political societies. What happened is that you couldn't join a political society outside the jurisdiction of your specific municipality slash area. The idea being that you had to contain all of these little groupings in the specific areas that you couldn't mobilize cross-national uh, allegiances that could then threaten to generate a lot of opposition. And so in 2011, we saw very much the same thing. I think Justin Gengler, I remember he wrote a blog back in 2011 saying the most dangerous men in Bahrain were actually Ibrahim Sharif and uh, Mohammed Buflasa, two Sunni uh, men. Uh, Ibrahim Sharif at that time was the head of Wa'ad. And the reason that we're seen as dangerous is because these demonstrated to the world that actually this protest movement wasn't just a Shia movement beholden to Iran that was trying to establish a theocratic state. No, this was a coalition of different people who had similar grievances, such as anti-corruption, uh, pro kind of democratic uh, demands, and and that was you know and that was the thing that scared the government. I mean, just as a quick example, I remember. One of the things that I think was most telling is that when there was a campaign of unity in Bahrain in early 2011, you had people holding hand from the Wa'alulu, you know, the Pearl Roundabout, to Al-Fatah Mosque, which became the kind of symbol of the, the loyalist groups. They held hands and, you know, there was this kind of period of unity, but it was very much attacked by the arrest of Ibrahim Sharif, the arrest of Buflasa, the attack of people who were using, for example, hashtags promoting unity in Bahrain, saying no Sunni, no Shia, just Bahraini, people who actually advocated that were seen as threats. So I think to, to the social opposition, it was nuanced and it was complex, but it was made to appear homogenous and ubiquitous. Uh, and that's where I think it's important to- Okay, Mark, to well, we've got to 17 questions. So- uh, Keep we'll, going. Yeah, we'll, we'll keep going. It's a familiar story. And it's the, you know, the uh, sectarian element is enforced by, by statecraft, if you like. And exactly. And, and the most dangerous groups are the ones who cross the border to the other. Anyway, so, uh, yeah. 
me just do a couple of questions now. Yeah. Um, you studied the evolution of the forms of repression in Bahrain over the years. Are there any similarities or par parallels in that evolution with, for instance, Saudi Arabia? That's one question. Another one, do you think a complete demographic replacement of Bahraini indigenous population will happen one day? Very quick uh, answer so that we could, uh, now they're 18 <laughs> questions. Okay. Well, regards to the similarities with Saudi Arabia, I think, um, firstly, you, you have to, in terms of sovereignty, is Bahrain a sovereign nation or is it really politically and economically so under Saudi's authority that you could argue that the nature of political techniques of uh, repression in Bahrain is actually similar to Saudi? It is to some extent. Um, and I think, you know, the, the kind of, especially what we saw post-Trump, you know, elected, we saw the execution of, or when Saudi executed Namar al-Namar and lots of uh, other political opposition, we saw a similar execution in Bahrain. Uh, we saw one of the deadliest years in Bahrain since 2011. Um, so, you know, we, there's a certain commonality in the nature of repressive techniques that happen in Saudi and Bahrain. But often this is also defined by external for, for, forces, since, such as who is the US president. So, yeah, I think there are. And just as a very kind of historical note, the continuity between what happens in Bahrain and Saudi is nebulous, especially now there's a bridge. What used to happen in the 20s and the 1800s is that when the Al Khalifa had a particular grievance or battle to fight, you'd had people coming from Nejd in Saudi Arabia, their tribal allies, to help support them. Um, so that was historic. What was very interesting about the, the 70s and 80s is that often the government would, or the government would spread rumors that the Saudi soldiers were in Bahrain because there was this notion that historically, particularly the Baharna, or the indigenous population, were very fearful of Saudi based on their history of these kind of interventions from Nejd in Bahrain. So there is a lot of crossover historically, and I think it's important to bear that in mind. Do I think that there would be complete demographic replacement of Bahrain indigenous population will happen one day? Uh, I mean, I, I, I don't think so in the sense that in order for that to happen, they would have to be, uh, they would have to be either killed like a, in a genocidal form. Uh, they would have to be, uh, or, or they would have to be, um, I can't remember the word now, um, uh, sterilized. Uh, I think those would be the two things. I mean, don't get me wrong. There is, uh, I think Stacey Strobel recently wrote an argument about was there a Shia genocide in Bahrain like a hundred years ago? Uh, and we, we certainly, there are questions to be raised about how, how permissive in their violence would the regime be against the indigenous population had it not been for certain safeguards. But I can't see that happening. Um, uh, you know, I, I don't see it happening in that way. However, we, we need to be very clear, we, we, the, the, the violence enacted against the indigenous population is probably set to continue. The marginalization of the indigenous population is set to continue. And, you know, the ultimate, um, and I don't necessarily see that changing or getting better anytime soon. And, and I think that is really cause for, for, for alarm. Okay, um, there's a congratulation for the excellent book. And the question is about the external validity of the argument. To what extent can the Bahrain case tell us about repression method in other countries? And another uh, question from uh, John Charcroft. Thank you very much for this. Can I ask whether human rights advocacy has posed a challenge to hegemony in Bahrain? Or are the authorities now playing the human rights game by following processes, establishing institutions, commissions, etc., in a way that has enabled them to defang, incorporate, co-opt, repress 
human yeah. rights activism. Yeah, thanks. Okay, yeah, so for David's question about how applicable these are, I mean, I think there's, that's a really important question. And obviously, I will caveat that by saying, as an interpretive case, uh, as a case study, mo mo any sort of assertions are limited, in a sense, to Bahrain. However, having said that, of course, I think there could be much of use in determining how useful these, these are in other case studies. So, for example, I did mention how I was looking at a, a, the trajectory of um, how important changing suzerains are. So I think, you know, I think even that argument in terms of repression is useful. If you looked at another country that has undergone um, a, say, decolonization or that kind of thing, it might be a useful way of approaching it. Um, but there's also other things like, you know, I think I can't remember the name of the academics, but they talk, they talk about legitimators. Who are the legitimators of repression? And one of the big questions about repression studies is what we, we don't know much about the individual agents of repression and what role they play in carrying out repression. And I think one of the interesting things about using this approach is that I do focus a lot where possible on these certain actors, whether it's Charles Belgrave or Khalifa bin Salman and their specific role in carrying out repression. So I think l focusing on things like Jishmetid, it shows that through, for example, archival research and other things, you can get an insight into who are the people who are actually driving a lot of these uh, repressive techniques. And I think that can be quite useful. But for other studying things like sectarianism, um, the coup proofing strategies, uh, you know, propaganda, um, and, and the increased role of digital media in, in, in repression. I think there's plenty of insights in the book that would actually be useful for other scholars. And actually, I mean, I mentioned that I focus on these four columns of, of, of repressive methods, but when I, when I create my sort of theoretical overview, it's very much a template of repression. Here I synthesize uh, repress, repression or political repression from different literature. So I look at political policing and criminology or political repression in, in political science, or even sort of elements of control if we look at a post-structuralist kind of approach. And through these, I create a template, which is essentially just a typology of different forms of repression and subforms of repression that I think would be a very useful starting point for anyone approaching repression studies, because it just shows you these are different kinds of repression. Uh, and you know what was interesting look at Bahrain, some of those were missing from these typology I created. So the whole inductive approach of looking at the data and see what jumps back at you helps you flesh out this, this typology, which, which might be useful then for other cases. Uh, um, just, it, it occurred to me to ask uh, a caveat. Mm. Do you suspect sure. that the torturers in Bahraini prison have a substantial number of foreign nationals who are imported to do the job, or are they local? Mostly? No, um, uh, it's, it's, well, it, so there's divisions of labor, at least there's reported divisions of labor between the, the, the types of the police. So, and this changes. And this is another aspect of repression, you know, who is employed in Bahrain, whether as teachers or policemen, would depend on the geopolitical situation at the time. So during the rise of Arab nationalism, often Palestinians or Egyptians were issued because they were viewed as potentially dangerous, right? And so that they then relied more on people, say from Iraq, they sort of tribally loyal to that come into the police, right? So this changes over time, but um, certainly I think, I think one of the, you know, when we look a bit at the, the historical narrative, we get a bit of an insight into these higher level security situations simply because we have the, the documents. But um, I think one very interesting example from the 70s was that uh, when there was a discussion going on about the nature of torture uh, occurring. And um, one of the reports, I think it was, this was by, it was narrated to a British diplomat was that uh, the bar there were Bahrainis involved in actually executing the torture. 
And they said the worst among them were the Al Khalifa, and that the Al Khalifa tended to encourage them to be more rather than less brutal in their methods, right? So there was an explicit example here of them being told or instructed to be more violent. And we know in 2011, one of the most notorious uh, torturers was Bahraini, and he was thanked by the prime minister after he was released from, from an investigation. And the prime minister basically said to him, these rules don't apply to you, right? He essentially exonerated this guy and thanked him for his loyalty to the regime. And that's not to say there aren't other people torturing, there are. And we, we even have evidence that Ian Henderson, you know, the British head of police who was in Kenya, also engaged personally in torture from narratives. Although this is less clear from the historical documentation. Yeah. But yeah, that's it's a free for all. Okay, thank you. Right, another uh, two questions. Uh, do you think the authorities truly know the subjects? So as when to calm or to seek to calm the situation, how much the Saudis and Emiratis shape events and outcomes in Bahrain? That's two questions in one, but another one. So you have three now. Uh, is political yeah. repression increasing or decreasing now? And do you think that the historical cycle of negotiation following repression will be repeated at any time soon? Mm. Okay, so I'll, I'll, I'll go to John's question first, which is about human rights advocacy. Oh, yeah. I mean, this is a very interesting question because I think human rights advocacy from the part of Bahrainis was very important and pivotal because again, it allowed um, Bahraini opposition to speak on this level of human rights that appealed to all irrespective of their particular political, perhaps religious or, or socio-cultural differences. And that was seen as a very potent platform because again, it had this uniting aspect. Um, and I think this initially shocked the, the government uh, and a lot did shock the government in 2011, including use of technology. And, and, and this allowed, I think, the Bahraini opposition to, to achieve a, a lot of success in the international arena in terms of their human rights lobbying and their human rights activism. But the, the Bahraini authorities were very quick to, to learn this. And part, again, of this is probably no doubt due to the fact that there's so many other parties interested in their survival, not least the British establishment, who, of course, as a historic ally, have provided all sorts of support for the Bahraini regime, whether indirectly through the PR services and whitewashing or police reform and training. And so I think one of the most, just to, to be succinct, the egregious examples of this human rights, the shifting narrative, was the 2011 BICI report, you know, the Bahrain Independent Commission of Inquiry, which in many ways is an important document. You know, the Bahraini authorities sought to gain legitimacy and to sort of argue that they were going to reform by having an investigation into all the, the killings and torture that happened throughout 2011, create this legal document as a basis for reform. And this, and it was, it was done by, you know, human, right, human rights lawyers. It was touted as a, a kind of a big step in, in Bahrain's history because they'd done this report that then recommended the establishment of various organisms, uh, human rights organisms. Um, and essentially, what is this? And I, I, I actually did a cartoon in my book that demonstrated how the BICI report was actually used as a tool to kind of shield the regime from criticism because it allowed a lot of Bahrain's allies to sort of defend Bahrain by saying it was then committed to, to human rights. And then we saw a prolifer proliferation of gongos or government-owned non-governmental organizations in Bahrain, um, basically, you know, being the main interlocutors in the human rights narrative in Bahrain. So they certainly co-opted it. I mean, one of the most egregious examples of, of a Bahrain human rights organization and my government was one that defended the death penalty when Bahrain executed people several years ago. I mean, what human rights organization does that? 
And so in a way they have co-opted it and they have, they've, I think they've gained legitimacy through this. If you look at any comment or narrative about Bahrain coming out of Washington or London, they'll often just talk about their commitment to reform and then cite a few examples of the BIC report or these other human rights initiatives that are happening. So I think that's, yeah, it's, it's uh, sorry, it's a very quick answer to that, but yes, I do think they're attempting to co-opt it and, and they have done to, to a large extent. Um, yeah. Justin's question is very interesting. Do you know the authorities truly know the subject so it's when to calm or not calm the situation? Well, there's an interesting point here about the development of this. I remember an interesting quote, I think, from the 60s, where I, uh, there's a discussion between two officials. One said, you know, 10 years ago, the emir knew the name of every, almost every person on the island and every family, right? And what you see across history is, obviously, Bahrain, you know, grows in size. But as it grows in size and, and oppositions change, you have an increasing distance between the ruling family and the population it claims to serve. And that then necessitates other methods of repression uh, that enable you to access things that you might ordinarily have access to. So the whole, I argue that the whole growth of the surveillance apparatus, which really happened under Ian Henderson, uh, was really important because H Henderson's methodology was all about infiltration. Right? You'd get a loyal Bahraini or someone you'd threatened with something and, and get them to, to essentially be loyal to the states. And then you'd infiltrate social movements using these people. And now that technique more or less becomes necessary once you lose your ability to kind of know what's going on in the country on a very personalistic level. So there is an element that, that was certainly the case and that's changed over time. Um, but at the same time, I think, I think you can't always anticipate the outcomes of, of, of what's gonna happen. And I think the example I cited earlier, about when the regime released three political prisoners in the 90s to calm the situation had the adverse effect. Um, but at the end of the day, the government also know that if they release them and they cause problems, they can just arrest them again. Uh, so they can, in some forms, take risks. Um, the Saudi Emiratis, what extent they shape outcomes? Absolutely shape outcomes. I think one of my, my main arguments about Saudi interference is that the Saudis, from the control of what arms Bahrain buys, to the outcomes of political trials of political prisoners have always been influential. Even the ab abandonment of Bahrain's parliamentary uh, national assembly in 75 was also a direct result of Saudi pressure. Um, so absolutely, uh, I think historically, especially after 1971, the Saudi, what the Saudis want, or how the Saudis view the security situation in the Gulf defines what happens in Bahrain. And I think there's an interesting quote from an official back in the 60s who said the biggest threat to Bahrain wasn't Iran or anyone else, it was Saudi Arabia. <laughs> uh, because he, he meant it in the sense that, you know, Saudi was the main threat to Bahrain's, Bahrain's autonomy uh, as, as a state. So, um, you know, and, and you know, there's, there's plenty of examples of how Saudi have, have done various things in order to try and control dissent, you know. Saudi own the revenues or command the revenues from the Abu Safa oil field uh, in Saudi Arabia, and that revenue goes to Bahrain. In the 1990s, when they were trying to calm the, the, the uprisings, they increased the amount of allocation and revenue they gave to Bahrain from Abu Safa in order to try and stimulate state spending that would hopefully stave off unrest, right? So literally, they were turning on the kind of oil tap to try and solve this particular problem. Uh, and that's just one aspect of how they might do it. Is political repression, uh, repression increasing or decreasing now? Uh, and the historical cycle of negotiation following the question will be repeated. Yeah, I think Simeon's question is, is really, 
it's obviously one of the fundamental ones. One, we never know when a repressive cycle is going to start. But I think one of the interesting things that we've seen throughout history, there is some sort of, there's a lag where things happen and then there's repression. And part of the lag is, is based on a number of factors that the government uh, brutally repress a lot of the most active and important uh, activists, right? They either get tortured, they get imprisoned, right? They, there's costs for their families. There's all these things, right? So you're, you're actually attacking the organizational capacity of the opposition movement by removing people from space and putting them in prison or sanctioning them. That's, that's one problem. Uh, then there's obviously this, the, 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 the perceived stimulation packages, you know, that the, the stimulus packages, not stimulation packages, where they, you know, invest in or try to do, engage in what is called grievance removal, right? They try to address some of the concerns of the opposition, whether it's housing or other things, in order to try and remove some of the objects of discontent. That's another. However, this has always been unsustainable in Bahrain's history because the fundamental grievances are never addressed. But then you have the barrier of fear, which is, was overcome in 2011, where everyone went onto the streets. And that was partly galvanized by what was happening in Egypt and the rest of the world. You know, you can't underestimate the importance of morale and solidarity. However, I think there's a generational element. And what we'll see is, whilst you might imprison people and do those things, this very much, those people will remember being tortured. They remember the, the, the state brutality. Their children will, will also remember that. But they might have a very different interpretation of it. They will uh, potentially feel the grievance of that historic repression or the repression of their families without necessarily having the direct experience of torture or incarceration. And they, and that generation, I think when the generation comes of age, um, and that could be in you know, 10, 15 years, that's, that's when there is potential for it to, to be an uprising, along with, again, as we saw before, potential economic recession. So there has to be a number of things coming together to generate this. But I think it's very likely we could see something similar in, in 10 years time Okay. Um, are Shia population specifically targeted, or is persecution, persecution happening to any opponent, regardless of their religious affiliation? And then back to Ian Henderson, was well known as head of the Bahrain security apparatus for three decades. Do the British still have a guiding presence in this sector? Mm. I think the question about whether the Shia population is specifically targeted is really interesting. Because one, it changes over time. But two, it's actually, it's quite specific. So I think if we were to say this in, in Bahrain, the Baharna population, I think, have been the object of particular persecution by the Al-Khalifa regime, right? More so than just generally the Shia population. Uh, though this did change. So in the 20s or prior to the 20s, the indigenous Baharna population were very much brutalized by the regime. You know, you'd have stories where the Al-Khalifa and the allies would go into Baharna villages and kill people and loot their property. Uh, and this was constant. And this is one of the reasons that prompted further British intervention in the 1920s. The Baharna went to the British saying, listen, here's a list, a list of what Abdul al-Khalifa is doing to us. We can't do this. And we can't, we can't get any defense because you have an obligation to protect the al-Khalifa. Ordinarily, we'd go to another ruler and demand their protection. But we can't do that because you're protecting al-Khalifa. So you'll just attack us. Um, so the Baharna were very much targeted, I would say, specifically. The, the, but having said that, Shia have always been viewed with suspicion. And this isn't just a political pragmatic thing. There was a very interesting example in the 30s, where, and this is very kind of, I don't think it's really written about, a member of the Al-Khalifa family, he, he, he converted to, 
he became Shia, right? And you have Charles Belgrave writing in his diary that there was a big problem in town because he converted to Shia and lots of people coming out on the streets and like uh, insulting this guy, right, for converting. And this then was threatening to rile up uh, sectarian tensions because people were just shouting like all these sectarian stories at this guy. So we can't also deny the fact that there was this kind of animosity towards the Shia. And this did get worse. Uh, it seemed to have got worse since the, the, the century progressed, but it's not always clear why. And I, one of the things I do want to argue here is that this has nothing to do with the 1979 revolution, right? So, you know, in the 50s, one of the problems, again, was that the police were seen as mostly Sunni. And this was acknowledged, right? And so every time there was violence against, um, like, say, the Bahana, it took on a sectarian characteristic. But at the same time, and, and the, the, the ruling family were incredibly distrustful of the Shia. So when independence was approaching, in 1971, in 1968, when they set up the Bahrain Defense Force, the army, there was even a conversation then about how many Shia to exclude from the proportion of Shia that they could have in the army, right? So when they went into 1971, they didn't want to have Shia in the army, uh, into the new army, right? So these discussions about sectarian discrimination, they existed, they've existed for a long time and they've taken many different forms. Um, but yeah, they, they are targeted broadly, but I would say that there's a specific uh, they reserve, the ruling family reserve a specific kind of animosity towards the, the Baharana population, um, who seem to be both, or who are both Bahana, as like an ethnic category, and also Shia, right? Um, but obviously the Shia community in Bahrain is much more diverse. And at times the Bahrain, the Al Khalifa have used the Shia community, like the Persian merchants, and the British have used that community to try and split the opposition. In 1956, when there was lots of strikes in support of the, the, the Committee of National Union called for strikes, the British went to the Persian merchant community and say, hey, these strikes are going to hurt your business, right? You should form a counter group, right? So they formed a counter group. Uh, you know, so they, they did exploit those tensions. But yeah, it's, it's slightly more nuanced. Um, Ian yeah. Henderson. Yeah. Sorry, Madawi. Do you want to ask more or should I answer the Ian Henderson? That's the second question. Yes. So the British sector, the British uh, have always have always been involved in the security of Bahrain in some form or another, whether it's having a military base or having people in the police. Uh, Ian Henderson is particularly interesting because um, he was in Bahrain for such a long time. However, there's definitely, I think there's a, there's a difference between in the, 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 we have some testimonies, right, of Ian Henderson being explicitly engaged in torture, such as digitally raping inmates. Um, and, the guiding presence of the British, I think, has changed. What was very significant about 1971 is not that the British police didn't cease to have influence. Of course they did. But the level of the influence changed dramatically. I mean, it was very explicit. Post-1971, almost suddenly, in Henderson, who was head of the CID, and there was Jim Bell, who was head of the regular police, they stopped having direct meetings with the minister of police. They used to have regular meetings where they discussed what was going on. And then that stopped. So for much of the time, and in many occasions, actually, Ian Henderson was left out of the loop of what was going on. There was a number of very important occasions, which are quite interesting, where Ian Henderson is complaining to the British embassy about the security measures been taken by specifically the royal, the, the, the royal court, or at least the, the Khalifa bin Salman and the crown prince at the time, Hamid. And, and some of these are very like, egregious. You know? in, one, in one occasion, Ian Henderson came to complain that the Khalifa or security forces acting on behalf of the ruling family. So we don't know which security forces, if these were like a private bodyguard group like the historic retainers, which rounding up Bahraini citizens who are Shia and then deporting them to Iran. 
So they estimate there's a few, a few hundred uh, Shias were just taken away, Bahraini citizens, deported to Iran. And then you had actually Ian Henderson complaining that this was going to happen. Now, that's not to say that Ian Henderson was a good guy. That's to say that it reflected that there was tensions between the nature of the repressive policies that were taken. And a lot of this tension stemmed from the fact that there was a difference or a perceived difference in how to do things between the, the ruling family and the British and the police. Uh, and in many ways, I think the British increasingly have just capitalized on their reputation as uh, you know, a liberal democracy in, in terms of their reforming the police. We saw in 2011, you know, John Timoney, the former assistant commissioner of the, the Metropolitan Police, was sent over to train Bahrain's police. Like that training would somehow make them less repressive. So often the British have been called on in the modern case to try and, you know, sort of smooth over Bahrain's reputation as a repressive state. Uh, the actual impact in terms of internal policing is, is more questionable. And there was a, there was a, and certainly in the 90s, there was a, I think it was the head of police, a Bahraini, Akhalifa. He was very keen to get rid of the, what was this called, the last vestiges of British influence in the police. So there has been like a movement of, of certainly among the ruling family, and this is historic, of despite what's said publicly, hatred of British officials in the police. And that's actually true. I mean, historically, the British officials from the 1920s onwards mostly hated the Al-Khalifa, and often the Al-Khalifa hated the British. I mean, I'm generalizing a little, but whilst they talk about this historic friendship, it was, it was anything but in many ways. It was this historical kind of uh, relationship of mutual strategic concern. Yeah. Um... So again, somebody is thanking you for your presentation. And the question is, can we consider massive demographic engineering and political naturalization of foreigners in line with methods of repression by the ruling family post 2011? And a question from, us, from the Bahraini opposition in London, from uh, Dr. Saeed Shahabi, what can be done to stop repression? Well. I'm glad that the question about demographic engineering was um, mentioned because this is really an explicit action of statecraft, right? Um, I try to think of an Austin Turk quote. So Austin Turk, the late Austin Turk, who was a chronologist, he wrote that manipulating entry or exit in reference to a polity or sub-polity boundaries is important in maintaining control of or power within a certain jurisdiction, i.e., one of the most effective forms of control for any government is to control who comes in and out of that country. And I think this is where demographic um, engineering is hugely important because what you're doing is essentially inviting in those you see as not a political threat and excluding those who are. And inclusion exclusion is a fundamental aspect of statecraft, whether it's issuing visas, whether it's uh, you know, inviting in labor that, that you can then kick out because you know, they call it docile labor, you know, they don't have any fundamental rights, you just eject them, you eject them from your polity. Uh, yeah, and so demographic engineering, I think, is a huge aspect of repression, and I document this very much so in my chapter on statecraft, um, because it's, it's certainly, and, and, and by doing that, by getting these people who are loyal to you, you also potentially increase your ability to coerce those who are deemed disloyal. Um, so I think that's, that's kind of a, that's a big problem. Um, to stop repression, uh, well, <laughs> you know, again, I go back to the, the, the kind of, I think it was Weber who said all states repress. So repression will never be stopped. The only things that really change are the nature and the methods of particular repression. Um, so depending what your concern is, I mean, I argue democracy in Bahrain is a form of repression. And that's not me being particularly contentious. That falls in line with the definition of repression, which is 
which is very much how does the state restrain or restrict the growth of social movements. And in Bahrain, the whole nature of democracy or the democratic change that's occurred in Bahrain is been designed, as we know, and has there's, there's been conversations about it that have made sure that, that, that the nature of democracy is not sufficient, that it threatens the monopoly of power had by the ruling family, right? But the, the point of creating the democracy is to give people an outlet to blow off steam, right? So it, it, it's a form of repression in the sense that it's designed to remove a grievance that then uh, diffuses social tensions. Um, so really, I think you can't eliminate repression from social life, and this depends on your definition. Uh, if you have a wide definition like me, it's impossible. If you have a very restrictive definition that just focuses on torture and police violence, yes, then maybe you can try and change it. But that then requires political change that, again, encourages transparency. Um, you know, th this. But yeah, in the short answer, it's not going to change, unfortunately. Well, interesting, Mark, what you say about a democracy in, Bah in a country like Bahrain, mm. in a form of repression. So that might not cheer uh, many activists who would like to convert these absolute monarchies into constitutional monarchies. Uh, yeah. Sort of elected parliaments to diffuse, but at the same time control. Very interesting comment. Yeah. I think uh, it will go uh, unnoticed. <laughs> Um, yes. um, yeah. Andrew asks um, about the archival sources you used, as they seem to be remarkably revealing. And his second question is, he's interested in your personal view of Colonel uh, Henderson and the extent to which his background influenced his form of repression, or whether, like the Al-Khalifa, he adapted his method to his superior's predictions. Mm. Yeah, really interesting questions. Yeah. Um, archivally, um, so I, I relied on documents from the India Office records, which are obviously in the British Library in London. A lot of them are also entombed in these large archival volumes. Uh, a lot are also now available publicly, digitally on the Qatar Digital Library, so you can actually access them online now. This project actually came online during my PhD. So whereas I spent a lot of time trawling through these documents, they later then became digitally available. But then I, I kind of like going through the documents, so it's fine. Um, and this, the, the, the second significant batch of, of primary documents was, was at the National Archives in Kew. So the National Archives hold documents that are more from 1960s onwards up to the 1980s. And this is where I, I think the book really adds a kind of value to the literature is really the kind of leading up to independence and post-independence kind of exploration of those relationships. And a lot of that information was from 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 um, the National Archives. Having said that, I also, you know, I also had to fight for some documents. Uh, I made lots of freedom information requests. Um, I even took the British, uh, the Foreign Office to court uh, with with some colleagues from Bahrain Watch. Uh, we 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 had to go to a higher tier tribunal because they refused to, or lower tier tribunal because they refused to uh, release a document about Ian Henderson actually. Um, and you know, it was only a two-page document. And when I first got it, it was literally like just black redacted with like three sentences. And then after a few thousand pounds and you know, over a year, the process that culminated in court case, we won the case, but we that meant we got like two more sentences, right? So, you know, again, let's talking about state repression. This is a good example of how you people use the courts to prevent activists from gaining information. It's a process of attrition, right? Who's gonna do that? Who has the resources? No one. Um, yeah, so Colonel Henderson. Uh, yeah, his background, I think, was super interesting. And there's a big distinction. What made Colonel Henderson really successful in Kenya uh, was that he spoke um, 
Kikuyu, I think. So he spoke the language of essentially uh, the the group of people who he was infiltrating with his police force, right? So his method was based on a very kind of personal knowledge of the environment that he grew up in. But however, he his technique was very much attributed to him. They called them pseudo gangs, which was using people from a community to infiltrate that community to then report back to the intelligence services with that information. Um, and so, yeah, I think he brought this technique to Bahrain. And what, again, what was actually super interesting is that the his technique was used by the Bahraini authorities until really, or at least it was used um, exclusively until I think it was 76, when we again had the murder of Abdullah al-Madani. And this is again why I argue Abdullah al-Madani's murder was a, is an interesting shift in the notion of repression tactics. So before his murder, what would actually happen? Special branch that Henderson ran, he relied on a lot of the intel coming from these informants. And part of this mechanism of repression was not to not to um, arrest people. You essentially let them go out into the community and bring back the information that they had because arresting would then uh, make people less reluctant to talk and you'd get bad information. When Abdullah al-Madani was killed, basically, the, that's when Khalifa bin Salman stepped in and then decided that they would just start arresting people to hell with what Henderson had decided. Right? Again, so you see this kind of tension. Um, so there were times, I think, where Henderson did adapt and, and, and respond to the desires of what the al-Khalifa wanted, but there was clearly times when they were impinging on his techniques of repression. So there was an interesting relationship there. Um, yeah, and there's more examples that I, I, I'd, I'd given, you know, uh, in the future. But yeah, for, for now, that's just one of them. Yeah, uh, I'm going to do two more questions. Uh, from a limited knowledge I have of Bahrain, uh, the state can pretty much be as violent as it pleases. They know there will be no regime change or similar because of the US bases and because of Saudi money is needed by the US and EU. So no accountability. Could you comment please? And is this going to change? Mm -hmm. And the second question is from uh, another uh, Bahrain opposition, uh, Dr. Jalal um, Fairuz. Recently, a few outlets of disclosed uh, outlets disclose how the UK establishment has been working to keep Bahrain ruling family in power and how its military uh, brass complicit in Bahrain's human rights abuses. My question is, what do you think can be done to stop this non-ethical backing of the Bahraini tyranny? Okay. Um, yeah, so Rada's question. Um, there's always moderation in terms of violence. There's always legitimacy costs from using violence. Any regime in, in now in an international kind of arena will face consequences of violent action to some extent. And I, you know, I'll go back to the example I used with, with the change in the US presidency. One of, the, one of the moderators of the violence in Bahrain, for better or for worse, was US foreign policy under Barack Obama. He, you know, with that pushing of human rights, and this is I'm again, I'm not going down to a road whether you think it's good or bad. It simply impacted on the, the general willingness of the Bahraini authorities to conduct certain acts of oppression. It didn't stop them arresting people and torturing them. We know that happened in 2011. However, we also know that no one was executed between 2011 and I think 2017. Oh, Basically, when Trump was elected, we saw executions take place then. So we know that there are levels of accountability that can exist. If Bahrain's allies were actually, you know, had this sort of moral courage to kind of denounce it or to, to kind of sanction, then maybe there's an impact. But at the same time, you know, 
these regimes just can say they're going to turn to China or something else for their military hardware. You know, they play them off each other. Um, so there's limitations in, in the notion of this kind of power. But yeah, I mean, with a US base in Bahrain, a British base there, you know, very much what happens then in Bahrain is very much dependent on the extent or the willingness of Bahrain's allies to actually get involved in internal politics. And we know historically that the British have been generally really bad at wanting to try and dissuade the Bahraini government from engaging repression. And the British, again, themselves have been part of that problem. Um, so, you know, yeah, this, this, this idea of Saudi money and, and Bahraini money being necessary is, is important, but it's also the geostrategic relationship. You know, a, a classic example, telling example, 1956, Britain actually weighed up whether they should continue to support the Al Khalifa or support the newly emergent Committee of National Union. You know, they were actually talking to the Committee of National Union and the Al Khalifa. In the end, they decided to support the Khalifa because they knew the Al Khalifa would allow the British to have a base in Bahrain. They weren't sure if the Committee of National Union, if a democracy would allow that. So they just went with what they were sure with, right? So, and, and, and that kind of fundamental relationship hasn't changed. You know, when there's a geopolitical cost, when there's a choice between supporting an unknown and a known, they choose the known. And unfortunately, that known is one that is also, you know, highly repressive. Um, so, yeah. And the question below that? Yeah, I mean, uh, Dr. Jalal, what do you think? What can be done to stop the non-ethical backing of tyranny? I mean, lots of things can be done. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, in theory, the British Parliament is accountable to its people. And if those people are well informed that uh, there's human rights violations and abuses going on in Bahrain and that the British, British government back those, in theory, people would oppose that. In reality, it doesn't work like that for so many reasons. Uh, but at the same time, well, there's many good and brave activists working tirelessly and human rights organization working tirelessly to at least document these, at least to put pressure on, on the government. Um, you know, or we could just have a revolution, you know, overthrow the, the British regime and then, you know, make our own policy. That's, a, that's another way of doing it. Um, but yeah, I, I, you know, I, I really admire the work of activists in, in, in trying to push back. Um, but, you know, I think so many people aren't just, are just not informed of what happens in Bahrain. I mean, often Bahrain has been called the forgotten uprising because it's, it's considered relatively small and it's easy for it to be hidden from the spotlight. And a lot of this hiding is done by British and American PR firms who basically whitewash human rights abuses, right? So if we're talking about a very practical example of what we can do, create legislation that prevents PR companies from defending dictators. Can we make that happen? I don't know. Well... Um, another question from Shirin Hassan. Did, did you think that Saudi Arabia played a behind-the-scene role in Bahrain's normalization with Israel? And then from Joshua, thanking you. And what else? It's a fascinating book. A question on methods. Could you speak a little about the challenges in studying Bahrain from outside the country, and in particular, untangling the ways in which the regime seeks to monitor and control social media. Yeah, so Shireen's question, I would say quickly, yes, uh, I'm sure Saudi played a role. I think Saudi, well, certainly the government have been very keen to normalize, but they know that the legitimacy costs would be too high. We also know that even, even when it came to recognizing, I think, uh, um, you know, a Balkan state, uh, the, the Bahrainis deferred to Saudi Arabia. So they would certainly not take an action like that without approval. Um, 
Joshua is quite, yeah. I think studying, this, how you study a place, I think it, it depends on the questions you ask and what you want to find out, right? So, you know, if, if you really want to do an ethnographic, ethnographic research, uh, speaking to, to Bahrainis, in a qualitative sense, it really helps to be there. Having said that, with technology, you can not zoom, but with secure technology, you can, in theory, do that research remotely. Um, it's just a bit more challenging and probably less rewarding. And I, I think your circumstance can also dictate the research inquiry that you take. As I said, you know, being left, left out of Bahrain allowed me to, to, to go and do archival research. I also, you know, I was part of a community of, of you know, whatever you want to call us, activists, um, a community. And, you know, I became very close with, with people I'd never met before, Bahrainis who were working to, to promote transparency and human rights outside the country. So then you gain an insight into a different community that you wouldn't necessarily have got had you been working in Bahrain. So I think these things can, can really change that. Briefly on social media, I mean, the social control in social media was, was really kind of acute in Bahrain, especially in 2011. And, and this was partly due to people's naivety at the time, because everyone was talking about social media as a, as a liberation technology, right? And, I, and it became very clear in 2011 that people who were using social media innocently, for example, you know, it was very common for people who weren't that involved in the protest just to go to the Pearl Roundabout and have a selfie taken and post it on Facebook. And then suddenly, people didn't really have protected Facebook accounts at that time. Then someone else would screenshot their picture at the Pearl Roundabout, they, they put this person as a traitor, we had like all these vigilante accounts opening up, sharing people's photos, asking for their phone number. Um, essentially, Twitter became like this kind of tool of recrimination and vigilantism. Um, and that's, you know, a very crude method, but also people were being sent uh, deceptive links that could repeal, reveal their IP address and therefore their physical address. And then they could get arrested. People were sent spyware through social media. Um, you know, people were just threatened, intimidated constantly by trolls on, on social media, including myself. It was, that's par for the course. You know, I, I spoke to lots of people who stopped tweeting about politics because they were intimidated online. Uh, and so that does act censorship. There's so many layers of social media control. Um, yes, so hopefully that was a... Do you, I mean, it's, is it the death of Twitter in this repressive regime? Obviously, we've seen it across uh, the region, but also in those countries that have a lot of resources and money to invest in surveillance through Twitter farms and uh, um, also bulbs and, and all sorts of new technologies so is it over for social media as a mechanism as a method for activism in this kind of context i, I would say i would say yes somewhere else I, I would say absolutely yes i mean i think there's there's a number of elements here firstly with social media and and digital technology's ability to transcend boundaries in your sovereignty over your information space is limited, right? So I would say Arabic social media, Arabic social media, Twitter, Arabic Twitter is dominated by Saudi Arabia accounts or loyal accounts at MBS, right? So anyone, and we've seen this, any parochial issue in Bahrain when Isa Qasim, a Bahraini cleric, was, was, was arrested, we saw hundreds of robot accounts calling him a Shia terrorist, right? But these were coming from a Saudi news channel. However, people in Bahrain could read them, right? Uh, so there's a transnational nature to this intimidation. And I would say that in line with the fact that people have been arrested, tortured for tweeting, we've seen Nabil Rajab, for example, in Bahrain be an example of that. We've seen the murder of Jamal Khashoggi in, 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 in Istanbul as a journalist. There's been so much that will sh it, it shows people the costs of engaging in free speech. There is 
a real life example that you could be killed or incarcerated for doing it. So you stop tweeting. And then online, when those people stop tweeting, activists stop tweeting, having discussions, that vacuum is then filled with propaganda and state control. So what you have is you have a civil society space or a public space, digital space, that's entirely co-opted by the regime. And, and then they dominate the information space. So there's this kind of two things, you're removing one voice and just replacing with another. And I would argue that uh, I, I just don't see how anyone could without taking precautions, and those precautions are not guaranteed, engage in a free and open discussion online in any of these countries without fear of retribution. And we know, for example, that, you know, Saud al-Qahtani, the Lord of the Flies, that is threatened. He's even said, you know, anonymity won't hide you. And we've seen that even before he said that we knew your Bahrain anonymous accounts were, uh, were, were then hacked by the regime. We know that Saudi have infiltrated Twitter itself and exactly. stolen data of Saudi Twitter users, anonymous Twitter users, and then provided to the Saudi regime, right? So even if these regimes change, I mean, even if people were confident, you know, there is, there's a lack of trust, one in the platforms, but I think, I just think the, the days of it being a liberation technology in the Arabic speaking, the Gulf anyway, is just over. Yeah, thank you. Um, although it's a depressing. Uh, yeah, I know, right? Great. Right, another question. We've got uh, uh, almost like uh, um, seven, eight minutes to answer more questions, if you don't mind. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Okay, so Sherid Hassan, how can we assess the finding of the Basuni Commission that investigated the regime's crackdown in 2011? in the 2011 uprising and what are the conclusions that the regime reached afterwards? And uh, another one from Rina, uh, how the normalization treaty with, uh, will affect the treatment of the opposition in Bahrain? And how far do you think the government will go in this order? Um, so with the Bastionia report, um, I remember, so the Bastionia report was published in 2011 and there was various follow-up reports published by the Bahraini authorities after that. And then Bahrain Watch, the NGO is part of, along with POMEPS, we did various uh, tracking of the implementation of these recommendations. And the recommendations were varied from the technical, for example, you need to change this relationship between the National Security Agency and the police, to you need to set up uh, accountability mechanisms and you need to hold those accused of uh, engaging in torture to justice. There was, there was many different recommendations I can turn to. So implementing these, tracking these was, was, was what I've been doing and what other people have been doing since then. But it was very clear from the early days that the implementation of a lot of these recommendations were either superficial or just non-existent, right? So uh, a particularly egregious example, I think one of the most important demands after 2000, after the Bastion report, was that those who committed torture and whatnot and killed Bahrainis were held to account, right? And in the first follow-up report, I think to the BICU report released by the government, essentially the government just dismissed about several dozen cases of civilians who had been killed by the police. They just said there was no evidence. So essentially they just said, oh, we're not gonna bother even trying to, to investigate these cases, right? So, you know, and, and that's just one particular example. And some of the mechanisms that were established have been rolled back already. Uh, the spirit of the report, which was advocating reconciliation stuff has also, was, was never really fully implemented. Um, so the Bastion report was very early on, I would say a year after its implementation seen as just a way to whitewash the uprising uh, and there's there's you know there's still you can still find you know articles about how it's been tracked but no absolutely not and the, the, the amount of policemen who have actually been brought to justice is probably zero 
or at least you know you know there's there's mechanisms of avoiding this and again this is when i talk about legal repression right what do you do firstly if you're going to get you know if you're going to accuse a policeman of killing someone you don't get an offer you don't get a high ranking official you get a low level uh, you know rotten apple as they call it but what do you do you put him on trial you might put 20 others on trial but you dismiss them early you focus on this one guy you give him 20 years in prison then he appeals it then he gets seven years and then there's another final appeal and he gets one and then he gets released after six months and no one can actually determine whether or not he was in prison anyway because there's no full accountability right and this is a pattern that you see there's all sorts of ways of, of, of getting around these things and the, and the Bahraini regime have been doing that because fundamentally they need to treat the people who protect the regime with yeah they have to reward them for their loyalty and that, that discussion i mentioned between the prime minister and a guy accused of torture was very much that like sorry it's almost like sorry you had to go through that trial but don't worry you you won't be ever in prison um the normalization yeah and how do you, yeah i think in a way the normalization is a bit of a benefit for the government not exclusively because at the end of the day the bahrain regime is a kind of neoliberal government they want to attract fdi they don't want protests slowing everything down all the time as they kind of phrase it but if you can have the opposition focusing on something like Israel and normalization, then that's better than having the opposition focus on regime reform or political change, right? So there is an advantage to that. But however, you know, it could also mean that people just get angry at the, regime, the same regime again for normalization, but it's a way of redirecting slightly the attention or the focus of the opposition demands that don't revolve around a constitutional change. So there is a benefit there, I think. Okay, um, here from Joe, the Bahrain Institute for Human for Rights and Democracy, congratulating you on the book. Do you have any comments on how the UK government strategy in Bahrain has changed since the 2011 uprising, and how important is the UK to the maintenance of the contemporary Al Khalifa government? Another question is a, a comment first. As far as I know, the majority of Bahrainis are uh, Shiites and the ruling family is Sunni. This is where the issue really lies. Most monarchies in the Middle East will disappear in the next 20 years. This is uh, my hunch. Monarchies don't, um, oh, it's a comment actually, don't serve a purpose in the Middle East due to their oppressive nature. Thank you so much. Okay, it's not a question. So I'll move to another one. And I think this will probably be our last question as we're gonna be running out of time. Uh, what's your comment on nationality revocation as a tool of repression in Bahrain? Do you see any foreign power backing it or influencing it? Mm. Yeah, okay, so the big question, UK's role I think has remained fairly consistent in broad terms since 1971. So one of the reasons that the British didn't really want to, you know, contest with the Al Khalifa's say, new methods of oppression is because they knew that they were entering now a phase where Bahraini contracts were being competed for and the British wanted basically to establish good trade links with Bahrain uh, and make money from Bahrain trade relationships and the way they sought to do that was not to antagonize the Al Khalifa or make these demands of them and this has very much been the case for the past 40 years and since 2011 and and as a result you know Britain benefit twice from a lot of the services they've provided to Bahrain. So the police reform, that does several, two things. Firstly, it's a revenue stream for the British. It's like the arms trade in many ways, the PR trade. People are capitalizing from these crises, right? So they get money from that. But also there's a legitimacy cost. Not only are you making money from this new 
service that you're providing the Bahraini authorities. But you are able to legitimize your relationship with the Bahraini authorities by saying that the services we are providing are done in such a way as to make the regime better, or you know, repress better. So I think this is very much what the, the, the UK are focused on, is providing services, but also providing what is essentially like a legitimization industry. Uh, and I think this is increasingly clear from 2011 onwards. Uh, and obviously since Brexit, um, you know, Brexit has obviously threatened, you know, well, it's gonna damage UK's economy. So the, the British are gonna be less fussy uh, about any sort of business deals they make. On the contrary, Brexit has probably been advocated by certain, uh, you know, the conservatives because it enables them to strike up uh, trade deals that might ordinarily be problematic. You know, they'd be less beholden to EU regulations on the arms, for example. And obviously arms are a very important uh, source of income for the British regime. In fact, UK's biggest arms customers in 2017 were the most repressive regimes in the world, right? So repressive regimes are good business for the UK. Uh, let's not forget that. And that's not me being, you know, trite, it's just true. Um, yes, and nationality revocation, absolutely a tool of repression. Uh, remember, any, any, any technique that's designed to raise the costs of someone engaging in collective action is a tool of repression. So if you remove someone's nationality, you're doing several things. Well, I mean, you're harming them internally. You're preventing them from living a life, whether it's getting a bank account or voting, you're doing all these things. But also you're preventing them from leaving the country in many ways uh, and preventing them from engaging activism abroad or, or, or you know, exerting political pressure from another place. So you're actually entrapping them within a regime that is already, or a state that's already very repressive. So yeah, absolutely it is. Um, yeah. Okay, uh, I think we're running out of time. It's exactly uh, the moment when we should stop. Um, I'd like to thank you, Mark, for a very fascinating, uh, although depressing, uh, account of the history and the current situation. Doesn't seem that much has changed when it comes to repression. In fact, it has been uh, enhanced by new technologies, by new national links. Uh, which is extremely uh, worrying for the people who uh, are in the region and also for the activists abroad, as you mentioned a couple mm -hmm. of cases, when the outreach of, of the repressive state can actually reach anywhere. And we have seen very, very uh, uh, troubling crimes in the last uh, two, three years. Um, but I think uh, one, one has to conclude on, on a an upbeat and the repression um, alone doesn't actually end uh, activism. We've seen the most repressive regimes pr continue to produce um, activists uh, concerned by um, the issues that you raised, human rights and, and other, other important issues. Um, thank you very much. And I would, uh, in normal circumstances, we would have you sign uh, copies of the book just outside the seminar room, uh, but it's not uh, possible at the moment. And uh, I would encourage you to uh, order the book on any of the uh, famous uh, websites. Um, thank you very much, Mark. And thank you for the Middle East Center for giving us this opportunity during these difficult times to engage with uh, Mark and uh, many other uh, speakers in the series. 
Um, and thank you for the participants who we would have loved to see you, but uh, uh, at least we heard your voices. And I do apologize that I couldn't uh, really get through the list, which kept in, uh, the list of questions, and it kept increasing. And people uh, felt so motivated by your talk, Mark, that they they had they wanted to know more. So I think there are many answers to your questions in the book. And thank you very much. Thank you so much. And thanks, everyone. Thanks, Madari. Thank you, everyone, for coming.